Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. It's been a really busy weekend with the Tom's Big Spiders front because I've been full bore trying to put together that beginner species video I've been working on for quite a while now. Unfortunately, when I came up with the idea for it, I understood it was going to be a pretty ambitious undertaking. The first time we did it, it was basically all of the beginner species on my table, and I went around and talked about them just totally on the fly, unscripted. And this time around, it was going to be a lot different because I had a script and had to come up with all of the footage for the script. So it's been difficult only because it's a long video. It's about a half hour long. The script was all done out. I did the script. And then what I have to do is go back and fill in as I'm talking appropriate videos. So if I'm talking about uh, H. Chalensis, then I need to put in some H. Chalensis video. Now, the good thing is I've been doing this long enough and doing the YouTube thing long enough that I have a lot of, you know, quote unquote, stock footage of stuff I can use. I can pull stuff from old videos. However, in some cases, I was completely short. So I got about, I don't want to say what point in the video, but I got a decent way through it and realized that I had very little avicularia, avicularia footage to use for that portion of it. And obviously that means avicularia, avicularia made the list. So I put a call out to my patrons. I didn't get anything there. I put a call out to people on Facebook. You know, some of the people that follow me on Facebook, hoping they could help out. We got a lot of videos. And I feel bad. One of the reasons I didn't want to shout it out and try to get people to contribute footage is because I figured I'd get a lot more than I actually needed. And then I'm left in the position of having to leave, you know, clips out. And I felt badly because I got done last night about... Midnight, we finally stopped working on it. I started at 8 o'clock in the morning. We did, you know, walk. I took some breaks to do some other things, but worked on on and off all day. So it was about midnight where we finally finished up, and I still had more footage coming in. So for folks who gave that, you know, submitted footage to it and it didn't make the video, I, I truly appreciate it and I apologize. I, it was something I worried about. And then, like, at first there wasn't a lot of clips. So I'm like, this is going to be great. We'll just, you know, use these and there'll be enough. And then they just kept coming in. So I, like, doubled up on some of them. We have, you'll see when the video comes out we have a lot of clips for avicularia avicularia but i i couldn't include them all so i apologize in advance to the folks who went and put theirs in that were excited about seeing I'll, I'll make it up there we'll do something in the future but anyway it was a huge undertaking i'm not done yet i have the main video actually almost done i need to film one more clip it's a, just a 30 second clip that i need for a filler piece and then the actual base of it the guts of it will be done with the labels of the spiders with the countdown and everything else then I have to shoot the intro, the outro, and add a bunch of notes. So hopefully I finish it today because it's been taking a lot of time. And what I'm going to do is release the script of it through the podcast because it was originally designed kind of like a podcast thing and then I tightened it up. So we'll have the podcast version, we'll have the video version, and for folks who enjoy that age-old practice of reading, we will have the version will be going on the website, the new updated one. And I like this idea because, again, it's not just me. I think some of the ones I had in my original video are pretty spot on as far as what people picked. We had some that not even close, but I'm willing to take a back seat and let, you know, the people speak, the keepers speak, the, those who love these animals speak and say which ones they think are the best. So I'm very excited about that one as Lily snores in the background. Then the other thing that happened last week is I did do the podcast Animals at Home with Dylan, he was fantastic. I'll tell you, that was a lot of fun. I was really nervous about this, A, because of the constant noise I have in the background. You know, it's one thing I edit a lot of stuff out. Uh, I know there's people that tell me don't mention the dogs. I can't help it sometimes because like right now I have a dog snoring behind me. And that's going to be something that somebody new to the channel comes on and goes, what in God's name is going on in the background? We already had the incident with one of the dogs farting in the background. And somebody commented that they thought it was me. 
which was pretty embarrassing. So I throw that in there and I had to tell Dylan, listen, we, we chatted before it actually started. I said, I'm really worried about this because I can't edit. If something goes wrong on my end, I can't edit it out. He was in charge of the editing for, uh, part of it. So we did the interview. It went incredibly well. I, I feel like I should apologize to Dylan because I talked the majority of the interview was just me talking. But when you ask me questions about tarantulas and I know I have a limited time to talk about them, I'm going to try to get in as much as possible. So I haven't heard the whole thing yet. I believe it's going up next weekend. What he's going to do is send me a copy of it. So what we're going to do is I will have some clips of it hopefully next week for folks that are interested. Just come some teasers for folks who might be, you know, want to check it out. And I'm going to encourage people to go over and check out. He has an awesome podcast. The, the guy is ridiculously um, articulate. It was nice having a conversation with somebody that, you know, I, I think we gelled very well and it came across in the interview. I'm going to try to get him on Tom's Big Spiders at some point right now. I'm trying to convince him that he needs to get a tarantula. He's more into snakes and reptiles, but we're going to try to get him to get a tarantula and then talk about it. Maybe he can share some of the things that he's learned when, you know, as he gets into the hobby, he can talk about the things he's picked up and hopefully give me some kudos for helping him. So I'm hoping he does pick one up because I'd love to have him as a guest. It was just one of those people that you could tell that if you met somewhere and started chatting with, it was just effortless. We were just chatting away. Or I just, maybe I just don't shut up and it felt like it was effortless and it was me just basically squawking about tarantulas the whole time. We'll see how it goes. But anyway, next week I will hopefully have clips of that to put up in the podcast so that people can check out, kind of get a, a preview and then hopefully we'll all go over and hear, I'm going to be listening to it myself and, you know, show him some love. And, you know, he talked about some really cool topics and it was neat to discuss it with somebody who was not in the hobby because now I have to kind of break it down and explain it in a way that I don't normally do. So that's something I'm very much looking forward to. Uh, I'm hope I can't wait to hear the podcast. I'm hoping we can get him to get a tarantula so I can get him on Tom's Big Spiders because it was really a lot of fun. So for today, it's going to be something a little bit different, and I'm going to apologize to folks that have been in the hobby for a while, but I am. This is kind of a call out for help. Well, not a call for help. That makes it sound so dramatic. But what I'm working on, this is how this all started. I've been working on a book about tarantula care for quite some time. Now, before anybody gets really excited, this started about two and a half years ago. And the problem is I'm kind of a perfectionist when it comes to this stuff. Anybody that follows my material and enjoys it and makes comments like, you're so thorough, there's so much information, I obsess over trying to answer every question before it can be asked. So when I'm thinking of a topic, I'm thinking of all the interactions I've had with folks about tarantulas, bringing that in and be like, all right, somebody's going to ask this. I better cover that. Somebody's going to ask this. Well, this part here begs this question. So that's how it gets so dense and for lack of a better term with the information because I'm constantly trying to like even when I do my videos I'll watch the video back oh I should have done this this and this it drives me nuts so with the book thing I started writing it a long time ago probably about two and a half three years ago maybe the as a matter of fact the sling care is actually a guide out of the sling care guide is actually a chapter out of it and I'm not giving up on it. It's just something I'm going to take my time on so I can be as thorough as possible. I don't want to rush it. I, I think there'd be a pretty good audience for it out there. And it's been something I've always wanted to do. But I'm taking my time with it. So one of the things that came up when I started doing this is I realized that I was making references to things in the text that I knew what they were. And somebody that had been in the hobby for a little while would probably know what they were. But somebody that's picking up a book, say, or, you know, in some cases, just watching a video to try to gather information might not know what I'm talking about. So, for example, the word slings. I've been asked many, many times because somebody will email me and I'll go, oh, yeah, maybe you want to start with a sling and I'll get something back. I'm so sorry. I know this is a stupid question, but what is a sling? 
And then I'm like, oh gosh, I didn't think of the fact that some people aren't really aware. And then I thought way, 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 way back till somebody was talking about getting tarantula slings. And I was like, what does that mean? And I looked it up and think I found out arachnoboids or something. So what I decided would be prudent to do, and again, I'm a teacher, so I'm used to textbooks and they have these in the back, is kind of a tarantula glossary. Like some of the terms and phrases and things that we throw out in the hobby that we you know use in everyday conversation when talking about tarantulas and how to keep them, but something that somebody who's not familiar with the hobby might not get right off the bat. So those are little road bumps, those little roadblocks that when you're trying to explain information that will cause somebody to pause and go, wait a minute, I don't know what this word means. So I started putting together, you know, it'll be an article at first. It'll be, you know, obviously this is going to be the first run of it, what we're going to do here on the podcast. And then eventually I want to turn it into a video because I have had a lot of people ask questions on the videos. Like, what does this word mean? What does it mean when I see this? The other day we had one of the ones come up, baboon tarantulas. Why in God's name are they called baboon tarantulas? And I had to break that one down. So what we are going to do here now is kind of run through what I've got because I want to put together something that's very, very thorough, but I also have to make sure it doesn't get too long because again, it's going to be a video for the for the text version of it, I don't care how long it gets. For the video version, you can only do this for so long before it's going to become a tedious video. And again, I'm apologizing to folks who have been in the hobby for a while because this is going to be stuff that you guys have probably known for quite some time. For those of you who are listening to me that have been in the hobby a little bit at the time, perhaps there's going to be some things in here you go, oh, okay, I didn't know what that meant. And there's going to be a lot of stuff you're going to be like, yeah, no kidding. Everybody knows that. So... What I would like to do is go through this because, again, I planned on doing it through that, – that's going to be my big push going on from this point forward is, is trying to come up with podcast versions, the articles that will go on the website, and the video versions of everything so I touch all my bases as far as how people might access the stuff that I'm putting out there. And for this one, you guys are kind of – this is kind of like the beta version. When you get a video game and you're kind of paying, but you're helping them test it out, this is the beta version. We're going to go through it. And what I would like from you guys, the help I would like is what am I missing on this? Because I know I don't have it all. And I will say there's going to be certain things I'm going to cover, certain things that might be covered in a different section of the book. So when you see the final version of this, if, if somebody offers something, you know, I'm going to ask for Facebook comments. If there's something you think I should cover, the idea for the glossary is it's the smaller things. They shouldn't like, when I'm looking at this paper right now, I've got my printout right in front of me, which I don't think I'm going to read verbatim, but I'm going to go through the general points of it. It should be something you can cover in a paragraph or two. If it ends up being something that takes an entire page or two or you know several minutes to explain, then that would be something that would be covered in an actual chapter. This is more like I'm reading along and suddenly this author uses the word slings or I'm watching this video and somebody says slings. What the heck is a sling? So we would cover those types of things. So that's the only caveat really is just it should be something that's like more of a term that we use and I know I'm missing something. So here we go. Here's what I started off with. Now, obviously, these are not in any order right now. I'm trying to decide. I mean, if, it's, if it was a real glossary, it's obviously going to go in alphabetical order. I haven't decided if I would do it in order of importance or in order of where people are going to encounter them. So, for example, for my original copy here, I have slings as number or sizes and slings as number one. And that's because that's usually the first question people get. What, what are the different sizes? And I found this one an interesting one to approach because, quite frankly, they're all arbitrary. They're made up. There's no really such thing as a sling or a juvenile. Now, before everybody breaks out the pitchforks, I just mean there's no standard as far as from species to species. So to kick this one off, the first thing I covered was sizes with slings, juveniles, and young adults. 
basically what we covered here is the fact that they are arbitrary, that a sling from a, say, Theraphosa stermi would be much different from the sling of, say, Hopalopus species Columbia large. So what I covered in this one is the fact that a sling is the shortened version of spiderling, which all of us here are going, duh, but trust me, there was a period where you didn't know that. And the fact that slings can differ, what's counted as a sling, can differ from species to species. I figure that's an important thing to note because I can't tell you how many people will email me going, can you please tell me what is the exact size of a sling? When does it become a juvenile? So what I used here for the base is I said generally for the medium, you know, medium-sized species, the normal-sized species that go to five or six inches, you're talking about a sling to probably about an inch and a half. Now that can vary depending who you talk to, but the, most of the people I talk to, we talk around inch and a half, sometimes up to two inches but I, I like that inch and a half mark or at the point it starts showing some of its adult coloration. That's a good demarcation, I think, because for a lot of species, again, not all of them, because we mentioned Hapalopus species, Columbia large that have their adult colors very, very early on right off the bat. So it doesn't work for everything, but that's kind of a good guideline as far as when it starts, it gets out of that fragile stage, it's put on some size and it's starting to show its adult coloration. Now, as far as young adults, I've heard somebody told me that, you know, had, they heard an argument that it's ridiculous. No, what is the point of saying a young adult? Well, I think it is. It's why, why do we call, you know, 18, 19 year old kids, young adults? It's, it's to differentiate the fact that technically speaking, they're not. And if anybody out here is 18, 19 years old, I'm not criticizing and you have met some very mature ones, but technically at that age, you're not fully mature. In the case of tarantulas, you're talking about sexual maturity. So you have a specimen that's got some decent size, three inches, four inches or so, maybe a species that gets to be six inches. So it's looking pretty big. It's definitely got its adult colorations, but it's not yet sexually mature. So that can definitely be a case with males that haven't molted out and had their ultimate molt. With females, it's the ones that they're looking pretty big, but you're like, this one isn't ready to breed yet. So I do think it's important to mention because I know when I'm shopping for a larger specimen, young adult means that this thing isn't fully grown. I'm still going to get some molts out of it before it hits maturity. And, and that I like that. With adult, you don't know what you're getting. That could be an old lady, an old man, who knows? Well, old man, you'd know. So those are the things I covered with slings as far as the first entry into this. And I think... This one will be helpful to some people because there is a lot of confusion around what sizes actually constitute sling, juvenile, young adult, and I try to explain that out. Now, the second thing that comes up, and this just came up in an email, so I'm glad I covered it, was the fact that the three major types of tarantulas, which are arboreal, terrestrial, and fossorial, which, again, any of these, a, a little cursory Google search will pull up the answers, but sometimes when you're talking about something, like I just made the, I'm working on the beginner species video, and I did mention this because when you're in the middle of a video and you're talking about avicularia, avicularia, and you go, this is an arboreal species, many folks right off the bat will go, oh, they live in the trees. Some folks will be like, oh, they live in the trees? Like, I didn't know spiders could be in the trees. So I do think this is something that needs a little bit of explaining. So obviously, the majority of you guys out there listening to me right now know what arboreal, terrestrial, and fossorial mean. So I'm not going to get into the actual definitions as much as I did in this. But again, terrestrial means on the ground. And it should be mentioned, and I probably should add this in here, that some species, depending on their the point in their life cycle will be in one category and end up in another. But I think when we assign a definitive, this is a terrestrial spider, this is an arboreal spider, this is a fossorial spider, we're talking about their adult counterparts. So for example, Pisolotheria species, many of them will do some burrowing. Um, Elviolocipes will burrow, or is it ovula? I think it might be back to ovulosopes now. The 
Singapore Blue will do a lot of burrowing early on. And even now, my female is still kind of beneath her cork bark in the ground, not up top. But they're considered arboreal because when the lights go out, they're up top and hanging out up above like they would in the wild. So again, terrestrial, the ones are on the ground. Those are the ones you need more floor space. You do want to give them a few inches of substrate. That doesn't mean you just sprinkle dirt on. They do, many of them will use a hide if one is provided, some will not, they'll just sit out in the open, that's the fun part about terrestrial species is a lot of them will be right out in the open. And arboreal, obviously, the tree-dwelling spiders, although they may start as slings doing some burrowing, I'm looking at you, Pisolotheria and Oviolosopes and such, they, as they mature, they start coming out more. Avicularia, one of the species that's arboreal from day one, you know, the babies will even be right up off the ground, they don't do any burrowing, but those are ones that need more height to their environments, more height to their cages so that they can get off of the ground and exercise some of those arboreal tendencies. And then there's the fossorial species, or the pet holes, as we am amicably refer to them as, and those are the ones that need substrate to burrow. So any fossorial species, you're going to need more depth to the enclosure you're going to want to, especially for an adult, at least, you know, seven inches or six or seven inches or so. The good thing is when they dig, they bring up dirt, which kind of adds to the dirt on top of their burrow, so it kind of creates a little false depth there, but you definitely want to give them room to dig, and a lot of the Old world species are fossorial, so something folks getting new into the hobby need to be aware of. So they're not surprised when they put their, you know, prize pet in an enclosure that only has one inch of substrate, and then the thing starts webbing and becomes very defensive. Now, moving on for our glossary topic, a big one that a lot of people don't know about. I just had a discussion with a young lady the other day that had no idea that this was even a thing, but the difference between old world and new world tarantulas, something that a lot of us, and I've told the story before, how the first time I was walking around a reptile expo back in the 90s looking at tarantulas, I saw a tie, but it was called a tie black. And the thing was nasty, and I really wanted it because it scared me, and I kind of like that. It's like, this will help me get over my fear because apparently I'm an idiot when it comes to those kind of things. But I almost bought the thing thinking, well, worst case scenario, if it bites me, it's going to be no worse than a bee sting. And that would have been a terrible mistake. And I might not be sitting here right now on a computer in my living room by myself talking to all of you because if I'd been bitten by that thing, that probably would have been it for me for spiders for a while because there is a difference between old world and new world. New world, obviously, one's from North and South America and the surrounding islands. The majority of them use irritating or urticating hairs to defend themselves. They can rub them on you. They can kick them from their abdomen. They are nasty, even though some people are like, oh, that's no big deal. They can be, you know, depending on how your skin reacts to it, they can be quite nasty. If you get those hairs in your eyes and nose, again, bad thing. And then you have the old world tarantulas, those from Asia, Europe, Africa, Australia, and surrounding islands, which tend to be more defensive, they're faster, and they have that more potent venom that's going to really do a number on you. So again, it won't kill you, and I hate, we just had somebody the other day ask me on a YouTube video, why would you keep an animal that could kill you? And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm keeping tarantulas, and it kind of got snarky, but it turned into a good discussion. Oh, I didn't realize they can't kill you. But they can make you feel like you want to be dead because the some of those guys have ridiculously nasty venom that can have some long-term consequences. Like we're talking about some symptoms that can last quite some time. And that's something people really need to be aware of. It's not to scare people off of old world species. And I hate when people use fear-mongering to drive away what they see as beginners getting into old worlds. And I, I just, I don't go by that. I still think that's why the OBT has such a bad rap because a lot of people were picking them up. So we just demonize them to the point where people were terrified of them. And I have people now that are keeping old worlds. They're like, all right, I'm doing it. I'm getting an OBT. And
And then I hear from a little while later, like, man, this thing's a pussycat. This is totally like fine. So I think people need to be aware of the differences between the two. Obviously I do. I'm a huge advocate for people trying out new worlds first to get used to how they move and get your husbandry and rehousings down before going into old worlds. Cause again, the 99% of the time, it's not going to be an issue, but it's during those rehousings that you're going to run into trouble. And that's where you want to make sure you have your rehousing techniques on point so that you minimize the chance of having you face down with a defensive old world tarantula, but they're amazing animals. A lot of people get into them with no issue. I just think that that's something in our glossary we need to cover so that people are aware of it when they first get into the hobby. And talking about old worlds and new worlds, the next one would be kicking hairs. A lot of people will go, what does that mean? What does herring mean? What are they talking about? So long story short, everybody knows this because I just covered it a moment ago, but obviously urticating hairs. We would explain urticating hairs. I'm not going to get into a huge breakdown of the different types of urticating hairs for example type 2 that they just wipe on you and you know the different nastiness of type I think 4 and 5 I'm not 100% versed on but I do have my notes but I think people need to be aware that they can kick hairs that when their tarantula is you know rapidly quote unquote scratching its abdomen with its back legs it's not itching it's trying to kick hairs at you because it's unsettled it's defending itself and people need to be aware of the fact that the hairs can be nasty if you get them in your eyes they're super nasty. If you get them in your nose, they're super nasty. And the fact that you become less and less resistant to them as you're exposed to them. So I've, again, spoken to keepers that will not keep New World tarantulas anymore because of the fact that they can't be in a room with them without those hairs getting on them. And then one of the other things I do cover because people don't realize this is the fact that they will lay those hairs down even if they're not disturbed to kind of mark their territory, so to speak, so that when you're digging around in substrate and you don't have gloves on, it's easy to get those hairs in your hands. I've done it. I've gone in and like dug stuff up or pulled out mold with my bare hands and then my hands are itching later on. So in our glossary, we'll cover kicking hairs, the urticating hairs, and we'll cover the fact that those hairs, you know, they kick them off when they're stressed. They kick them off to defend themselves. They will kick them off when they molt to make like an area to protect themselves. So think about it. if you get a big Theraphosis sturmy that's flipping over in the wild, it's incredibly vulnerable. What it'll do is kick off all its hairs, make a big like nest pile of those hairs roll in it. So any animal that comes over sniffing is going to have a very unpleasant experience. And I think people need to be aware of that. So the next one I have, which is not an incredibly important one, but it gets asked a lot, is the odd number system for sexes. So a lot of times you will see somebody will post their collection and they'll say, I have Theraphosis Sturmy. We keep coming back to Sturmy on this one. Theraphosis Sturmy, 001. What those numbers mean is basically the first number, zero, would count as a male. The second number would count as a female. And the third number would count as unsexed. So for example, 1.0.0 would be one male, zero females, and zero unsexed. 0.1.0 would be one female. And 0.0.1 would mean one unsexed specimen, sometimes a sling. So someone who has one of each, for example, would use 1.1.1 which would mean one male, one female, and one unsexed. And I get a lot of questions about that. And it's a neat way of doing it. I don't see a lot of people doing it as much lately. Back when I first got in there were everywhere. I think my collection somewhere has them labeled that way. But it's kind of a nice way to tell what you have. And you'll see sometimes that people are selling things online like arachnoboards. And they'll throw up, this is what I have, and those numbers. And if you don't know those numbers, that can make it very confusing to understand what the individual has. So again, just a cool little numbering system to designate how many you have of each sex or unsexed. All right, so next up in my tarantula glossary, I had web. 
And the reason I put this one in there is the webbing or lack thereof or the uses of tend to confuse a lot of people new to the hobby. I get a lot of emails. Hey, Tom, how are you doing? I just picked up a B Hammeri and I'm really concerned with her because there's no webbing. And so then I have to go into a whole thing about webbing and how tarantulas don't, some species don't do a lot of webbing. They don't use the webbing to catch their prey, like some true spiders. That's a big one right off the bat because I had people, I've had people literally tell me, I don't know how my tarantula is going to catch the crickets I put in there because it has no webbing. And I try to explain that for many tarantulas, webbing has a lot of purposes, but it is not to catch prey. They will put out some webbing in front of their dens, which allows them to to better detect when prey is coming closer. When they catch prey, they will use webbing. Like if I feed something five crickets, they will use webbing to wrap it all up, make kind of like a cricket burrito with it. When they start eating their meals, sometimes they'll do what people refer to as the happy dance where they kind of spin around, but they look like they're laying down webbing. They will lay down a little web beneath themselves. Some people think it's to keep like ants and other little insects from getting up to them because they kind of sit on stilt legs to keep the prey away from the ground. And that will kind of deter them. Some say it's to collect little bits that might fall off, whatever it may be. They use it for feeding. When they molt, they will lay down, many will lay down either a molting mat or a boreal species will lay down a hammock. And that's to allow them to flip over on and they do their molt or in the case of a hammock, it keeps them suspended above the ground when they do their molting. When exploring, they will sometimes leave a thread of webbing behind them, which seems to be a guide thread, which will help them get back to wherever they're going. And mature males, obviously, will create what's called a sperm web. So to load up their appendages, which are their emboli, at the end of their pedipalps, what they do is lay the sperm into a web, and then they fill them up, and then they roll the web up and discard it like tissues in the corner, sometimes in the water dishes. It's kind of funny. They take them, kind of throw them away. Some of them bury them. It's very cute. But... Lots of uses for the webbing, not used to catch prey. Not all species lay down a lot of webbing. There are some that use it to kind of construct homes. So, for example, the GBB will do a lot of webbing to kind of build its area. We talked about in previous podcasts how the fossorial species, many of the baboon species, if not given enough room to burrow, will create almost their own den with webbing but not all species will web so just because your tarantula hasn't done any webbing doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it or it's defective for many species there's just not going to be a lot of webbing and that's completely normal next thing i covered was molting which this obviously turns into an entire chapter and i've written a whole big molting guide so i'm not going to go huge into this one but i do think some people don't realize that's how they grow uh, important things with mentioning with molting would be the fact that when they're flipped on their backs, that's how they molt. So just a brief description of the fact that tarantulas grow by creating a new exoskeleton beneath their old one. And then when the time comes, they burst out of that old exoskeleton. And the fact that you're going to see some stretching, the fact that they won't be able to eat for, in some cases, a few weeks, depending on the size, things of that nature. So again, not going into a full, this is what pre-molt is, this is what happens, this is what, you know, this is more of just kind of a cursory tarantulas will molt, this is what the process looks like. And then I will get into the whole thing, obviously, in a whole chapter. And then as part of molting, one of the things that comes up sometimes is instars, which is the stages between each molt. And I think I've had people, it's mostly people that come over from scorpions where I believe they, the majority of scorpions have a certain number of instars or I believe true spiders. I could be wrong here, not my forte, but there are certain animals that have a certain number, fixed number of instars. And that's not the case with tarantulas. So it's not, that's why you don't hear people go, oh, this is a seventh instar usually. Usually they'll talk about 
The only time you usually hear it mentioned is when people talk about like second instar slings, which is when they start to feed, which means they're ready to be separated and sold out. But we don't use instar very much because it depends on the species and it depends on a lot of factors how many instars they're going to have. So it's not as useful in the tarantula hobby, but you still may hear about it. And then we cover hooking out which is when the males supposedly develop their tibial hooks or their tibial spurs, which are the little things on the back of their legs that help them mating with the female to keep the female from munching them right off the bat. And what we go through in this is the fact that not all species have hooks. So although we use the term hooking out and it's very popular, I can't tell you how many people will send me pictures of mature males of different species that don't have the hooks and go, well, this can't be a mature male, right? Because it doesn't have the hooks. But then there are those fat boxing gloves, which are the emboli, the sex, male sex organs, at the end of the pedipalps that clearly show or illustrate that it is a male. So I wish we'd call it like bulbing out or boxing gloving out or something of that nature, something more appropriate that all of them do because looking for those hooks isn't the best way to sex a mature male, although for the ones that have them, it's pretty obvious. So we will talk about hooking out in this, the fact that the pedipalps are the way to go. I will have some nice little illustrations for them because I did some illustrations earlier for a thing on sexing tarantulas to help people out. But I think that's an important thing to cover because there's a lot of confusion there, especially with the fact that not all species have those tibial spurs or tibial hooks. Now, next up, I have a discussion on rehousings, which came up during my discussion with Dylan in the podcast. Like in some hobbies, rehousings aren't really a big deal. You don't hear people talking about rehousing their snakes too much. You just put them in tanks. Like I remember when I was doing snakes, there wasn't, we didn't talk about rehousings. With spiders, it's, it's, it's kind of a, an important part of the hobby. And that's because we tend to give spiders a certain size enclosures depending on the life stage they are. And this goes back to slings, juveniles, and adults or young adults. Slings, it's important to put slings, I think, in smaller enclosures so that they can find food more easily so that we can maintain their environment correctly because it's, it's a lot easier to make sure the moisture hasn't evaporated in a tiny vial than it would in, say, a 10-gallon aquarium. You're never sure what you got there. It's easier to add water without accidentally drowning or flooding the slings enclosure. And I think it helps us keep track of them better because you do want to make sure you know where your sling is. A teeny tiny sling in a giant enclosure makes it very difficult for the keeper to keep track of it. And that can be very stressful. And sometimes you have a situation where you don't even know the sling has died and it's been dead for a while, but you can't find it and you're not sure if it's in there. So we do have something in the hobby that's a little unique in the fact that we call them rehousings where you start a spider in something small, gets to a certain size, things get in a little cramped, we move it to something a little bigger. And then for many of us, there's a third step, even a fourth step, depending upon how many closures or how many rehousings you plan on doing and using. So that's something I think a lot of people come into the hobby and ask about. People that have never never kept a tarantula or have come from another hobby will look at that and go, what do you mean you need to rehouse them? And I've noticed a lot of times it's with people that have kept like snakes or reptiles will come in and go, I don't understand why you keep having to rehouse them. And I have to explain, well, here's the deal. We start them off small, then you move them to something a little bigger, then you can give them their, their dream home, give them room to wander. But while they're smaller, it makes more sense to put them in an environment that's safe, secure, that we can maintain correctly, and that allows them to find food and allows us to keep track of them. So that's why we do a lot of rehousings. It's more to just allow them to grow and allow us to keep track of them as they grow. Next up, I will cover, and this is, I'm just going to mention this here because I'm not going to get into the whole thing because I've done it before, I think two times on this podcast, if I'm not mistaken, but humidity and why it's so important to ignore humidity requirements. That's something I think it's very important. People are going to read humidity and care guides, not in hopefully anything I do because I generally don't mention it very often, or if I do, it's like we don't pay attention to humidity. We worry about, do they need moist substrate? Do they need dry substrate? But I do think that there is a point or it would 
benefit people to have a little section of it in a glossary where we can say, listen, we refer to tarantulas as arid species or moisture dependent or, you know, species that need a little moisture. We don't worry about humidity because that leads to a lot of people going out and a lot of buying those humidity gauges and sticking them in tanks and freaking out because, oh my gosh, I read that this one was supposed to have 80% humidity, but it's down to 78. What do I do? We want to get rid of that. We want to get rid of the stress that comes with that. We want to get rid of the dead tarantulas that sometimes result from people trying to follow care sheets. So I do think that one thing we want to mention is humidity and the fact that it doesn't really, but the majority of us believe that we don't, it doesn't apply to the tarantula hobby. We, we have moisture dependent, not moisture dependent, arid, whatever, water dishes. There's a whole thing we can go and there'd obviously be a whole chapter, but it would be something I'd want to mention. And then while talking about humidity, I might as well bounce over to this one that was toward the end, but care sheets. And my definition of care sheets is basically they're the work of the devil. No, I'm just kidding. Well, actually, that's really what I have in my text. But try to explain that for most people, care sheets are not what you want because care sheets are basically crib notes on how to keep them. And the majority of us loathe them because what will happen is somebody will come up that doesn't even have a species. They'll read something on Wikipedia. They'll read something somebody posted on their website. They'll take that and regurgitate the same information, throw it up, and have no experience to back it up. And that's the problem with a lot of these care sheets is they are written or passed on and they're A, incorrect. B, they usually contain ideal temperatures and ideal humidity ranges, which are not, there's no such thing as ideal temperatures or ideal humidity ranges. Or in the very least, you can't just throw out there, this species needs it 78.5 degrees. That doesn't make any sense. So a lot of these sheets do more harm than good, which is why people look down on them in the hobby. And I explained as an alternative, instead of going for care sheets, find people that keep them, that are using notes, that are actually able to report, this is how I kept mine. Look for people that have gotten, that have acquired their animals as slings and grown them through to adults or into the sub-adult stage so that you know they actually know what they're talking about. Somebody just picking up, I, I, I love the ones where somebody goes out and they're like, I just got an Afonapelma Samani. Uh, three weeks ago, here's how I care for it. Here's how to care for it. And then they start talking about slings and juveniles. And again, some people have the experience that you know that if they're talking about slings and juveniles, they know what they're talking about. But in many instances, you want somebody that has good experience with them. Go on the boards, go on Facebook groups, find people, say, hey, I just picked this up. I've got, I've done my research, but could you tell me what you guys have found with these? That's a great way to get real information as opposed to picking up some care sheet that somebody put together that probably never even kept the animal and that seems to happen a lot with some of these things that, that you can tell the people don't even know the animal haven't kept it so care sheets definitely something we would tackle in here just to kind of give people a warning right off the bat of why we don't like them in the hobby Next up, I had scientific names because that's something that I get a lot of questions about. And again, I'm not going to do a whole, I've done a whole article on scientific names. So anybody interested, there'll be, you know, if I, if I ever go the book route or when I go the book route, there'll be a little section on the binomial nomenclature. But I think it's important for people to understand why we use scientific names in the hobby, why, how they can change. You know, that's one big complaint we get. Well, what is the point of using scientific names when they do research and all of a sudden they change them? They need to know that and why common names, although they have their place, and I, I don't ever give anybody a hard time that uses common names. We all start there. But why it's important to learn the scientific names for purchasing spiders, because most places do have them listed under scientific names, from the fact that some of them don't have common names, or a lot of species out there, there are no common names for them. The fact that some of the common names can be confusing or overlapping. We'll want to cover all that just so people understand we're not just being elitist when we're using the scientific names. We're not trying to make people feel uncomfortable. It's just... Every hobby has its own terminology that you have to learn. Every hobby has its own, you know, 
set of terms and lexicon. And in this case, this is an important part of the tarantula hobby for people that are getting into it. And for many of us, it's kind of like, you know, I referred to this in the pod, the podcast interview that I just did. The fact that a lot of us, it's like getting your black belt almost or getting, a, you know, going up a belt as far as being in the hobby when you can start rolling off these, you know, scientific names. So again, very important hobby. And I think people need to understand why we find them to be so important. Now, this one isn't so much one word, but it is a concept that many people at first don't get, the male versus female discussion and why occasionally you will hear a keeper express extreme regret over discovering that her prized pet is a male. A lot of people are like, well, who cares? What, what is, why is there no love for the males? Well, it comes down to longevity, and that's it in a nutshell. When you get a male tarantula, the males don't live nearly as long as their female counterparts. So in the faster-growing species, you could have a male mature out in under a year, and that's it. You'd, you're done. Your pet is ready to breed. You can either send him out to breed or he slowly languishes and you know breaks down in your as he wanders around aimlessly trying to find a female to copulate with. Females go on much longer. So again, it's not so much they hate the males. And in some cases, like species, I'm thinking like Pamphibedius for Myctopus, the males are stunning. So it's kind of bittersweet because it's, oh, I got a male, but dear Lord, this is one of the prettiest things I've ever seen. So there's a good, there's an upside to having males sometimes. But for many of us, it comes down to we buy a lot of slings of one species because we want to get a female because we want that pet to be with us for many, many, many years. Next up, I was going to discuss fasting. And again, I think everybody here knows what that is, so I won't insult your intelligence by going in and reading the whole thing off. But again, I do get questions about this. And there's different types of fasting. There's fasting when they're in pre-molt, which I don't consider true fasting. And then there's fasting with species that seem to detect that in wherever they originally came from, wherever they originated from, it would be wintertime, and they would probably be shutting down for the winter because there wouldn't be prey. And the species will stop eating for several months. So it seems like the Chilean species... uh, uh, we'll do this sometimes. There was a huge, obviously, there's always been a huge issue with the wild-caught Gramostola rosea or Perteri taking months, if not some cases over a year off of eating for no apparent reason. I've had it with my Gramostola pulchropes slings. I had two slings that fasted for a good portion of the winter. My Afonopelma calcotis female will take, you know, she's one that was almost like clockwork. It was amazing. It was for a while, for several years, it was almost to the day she would bury herself and pop up again in like April. So she'd bury herself in like late October, pop up again in April, and she'd fast the entire winter, come out hungry, not having molted. So I do want to, I do think it's important to explain to people that can be an issue, that it's, although it's normal, it can cause a lot of stress, and to be aware of some things that might cause fasting. Now, coming up next, I had the term husbandry which is just the care. It's it's very simple, but a lot of people will go, oh, what does husbandry mean? And I think sometimes with husbandry, it's kind of laughable because the care for tarantulas is so easy. It almost doesn't even qualify. I know we... I've made a big deal over the years about the fact that I don't think keeping these guys is as difficult as some folks will try to make them out to be. And I have a lot of people that I talk to that just get into the hobby. You know, we all get, it's a new hobby. We're freaking out, reading all the information. And then two years down the road, like, yeah, this is actually really easy because there's only so many combinations of setups. There's, you know, once you get the behaviors down, the rehousings down, it's very, very simple. It's not something you need to, they don't require a lot of maintenance. But I do think for some species, there are little, you know, we can offer little notes about things to look for as far as the care is concerned. So we talk about setup, you know, feeding schedule, things of that nature when we talk about husbandry. But I do think it would be prudent to define that in any, you know, for any new keeper getting into it that, listen, when you're looking at husbandry, you're looking at how to set them up, what their needs are, the correct way to keep them healthy and keep them thriving in your care. Next up, I had everybody's favorite topic and oh, it's an H2. 
Again, I'm not going to get into the huge debate of that. Anybody that's read my articles know that I personally don't handle. I don't get on people that do handle. I get it. I understand it. It's, I have my H. Talensis is probably the only one I handle. And that's because every time I open her enclosure, she crawls out in my hand. But that's pretty much it. I've held the Bialbo before. There's been a couple I've held over the, but it, it's not something I practice. But I do think people getting into the hobby need to be aware that A, not everybody does it. B, you can be a good keeper and not handle because that seems to be one of the misconceptions that people come into the hobby with that if I can't hold my tarantula, I'm not really a good hobbyist or I'm not a true hobbyist. And that's not true at all. That's just, again, if you handle, you handle. If you don't, you don't. A lot of people have been in the hobby for a long time, started handling and kind of outgrew it and realized it really didn't do anything for them. And for me, I always try to practice good habits. So I realize that if I get used to sticking my hand out every time one of my New World tarantulas goes to leave its enclosure, or if, you know, if something goes to run away, I just stick my hand out as a reflex, then I'm going to do the same thing with a defensive old world, and that's going to be a bad habit to create. So I always practice. I had somebody go, do you treat, and this was true back in the day, not so much anymore, but do you treat your H. chalensis the same way you would treat your OBT? And I said, well, yes, I do. Because if I get in the habit of sticking my hand out there for one thing, I'm going to just be inclined to do it for the other one and not think in that split second moment, oh gosh, this is an old world. It's not going to appreciate my hand being there. So I do practice that. Again, we can get into the debates ad nauseum about you know the pros and cons of it or whatever. That's not what this is about. It's just to inform people, yes, there is handling. Yes, there is something. If you're going to handle, there are safe ways to go about it to make sure that you're in less danger and the spider's in less danger. And you don't have to handle. You can keep, a lot of people keep their collections and don't ever handle. So that I do think is something that needs to be covered. And then finally, I had baboon tarantulas because that gets asked all the time and tends to confuse people. And basically, there are two, as far as I'm aware of, there are two possible explanations for where this name came from. One is that their territories, the two animals' territories cross, so there are a lot of tarantulas, species living where baboons are and vice versa. And that the baboons will actually eat the tarantulas and feed on them. So they're called baboon spiders or baboon tarantulas because the baboons are eating them, which is one possible explanation for it. The other one is that people that live in these areas that have seen their little feet hanging out of their dens have said they look like baboon fingers. So hence baboon tarantulas. So in other words, you see the little legs laying out of the OBT like, ooh, that looks like little baboon fingers. So that's the other idea of where it might have come from. But basically, they are spiders from the you know continent of Africa or the surrounding islands of Africa, and they kind of include all of the African species. It just basically means African species of tarantulas, so nothing too, too confusing there. And finally, the last thing I was going to cover was the idea of, because a lot of people will hear this, especially when they get right in the hobby, is power feeding, and the fact that it is a term that came from mostly reptiles or snakes, where you would basically feed the animals as fast as you could to rush them on to sexual maturity so you could breed them and hopefully make some of the money back you spent on buying a pair of $20,000 snakes. So this is something that really doesn't apply. The majority of us that have been in the hobby for a while don't feel that it applies. I use the term only because that's what people are going to hear. Somebody's going to come into the hobby, go, I want to get a sling. How do I power feed it to get it bigger? And basically the premise behind it is that you... A, the part that people forget is you have to jack up the temperatures. So if you have a lot of people that try to quote unquote power feed their tarantulas, 
will stimulate their metabolisms by raising the temperatures. This is natural. Nature, they would have higher temperatures. That's when they do all their eating and filling up. And then when things got cooler, it would slow down a little bit. So you raise the temperatures and then you feed them as much as they'll eat. The problem with this is thought to be most of them will just eat a certain amount and then they go into pre-molt. And a lot of times you just end up with a longer pre-molt. So for example, if you have a formictopus species that you're feeding constantly, it's, it's 80 degrees, you're feeding constantly. A lot of them will eat, 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 pig out, and then spend several months in pre-molt. Where another one that you were feeding not so much would eat, 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 it would eat longer and have a shorter pre-molt. And that seems to be what we see with some of these species. Now, that's not to say that increasing temperatures will not give you a faster growing tarantula overall, because we have found that, especially with certain species, higher temperatures do lead to faster growth rates. And if you keep your temp your tarantulas at lower temperatures, you're generally going to see slower growth rates, which is fine. But the idea of like power feeding, it, it doesn't really work the way it does in the snake hobby. The majority is the big thing about it, I found that's that's can be dangerous is the fact that for many people, it's going to involve adding extra heat. And this is where people are like, oh, I'm adding a heat mat, so it'll be hotter in there. And that we don't want to do that. The, these guys do well at room temperatures. If you get a slower growing spider, that's fine. I get trying to grow them out of the sling stage more quickly. It makes sense to kind of do that. And you will see faster growth usually with slings. But for older specimens, it really doesn't make much sense. So the power feeding thing, it comes up quite a bit. I have people tell me they're power feeding their sling. Listen, I'm power feeding my sling. I dropped in like 30 crickets. And that's just, that's going to cause stress for your, your spider, especially if you're not increasing the heat at the same time. And even then, that's a lot of crickets for a spider to take down. So I do want to discuss the whole power thing, power feeding thing, kind of warn people off of it, because I really don't think in most instances it's appropriate. So there's what I have so far, and I've already, you know, I'm, I'm going through this and I'm racking my brain trying to think of other terms. And again, some of these are kind of ones that you could do a whole thing on, like the molting one will be a whole chapter. But I do think when people come across the word molting, they're going to ask, wait a minute, what's going on with this? Some people don't realize they molt. So the idea of this one, again, is those words that people might need a little explanation for before they go on deeper into whatever they're viewing or reading or listening to. These are the ones I have so far. What have I missed? And again, I want to make sure this one's pretty comprehensive moving forward. It will be part of a chapter in a book. But again, to be very, very clear, there is no rush on this book whatsoever. I'm kind of whittling away at it with some of these, you know, the scripts for some of the videos and stuff. It's kind of nice because you write this stuff and you can use it for many different things. But it, it will be a video. Obviously, we have the podcast here and I can do an update. This will be a nice little update to do with the podcast. If people give me some good ones, I can add to this list and go back to it next podcast and talk about which ones we added. But think about... For those of you who've been in the hobby, and I apologize you having to listen to all this stuff you've probably known for quite a few years, but for those that have been in the hobby for a while, think about those terms or words or phrases we use that could use a little explaining for somebody who's just getting into the hobby right off the bat. Those words that going through this, my theory is you're looking at beginner species, you're starting to get interested in spiders, then what's the next step? Well, here are some terms you need to be aware of. Here are some things you need to be aware of in the hobby. And that would be this video, podcast, article, whatever it may be, to just kind of give them that one up so when they encounter these words while doing their research, they know what they are. So what are they? What else am I missing here? I'm sure people are going to have some ones. I was like, oh God, I can't believe I forgot that. I'm sure that after I get some sleep, I will probably think of some more as well, but I would really like to buff this one out and turn it into a video, article, whatever it may be. And obviously we already have the podcast version here, but it's kind of us just discussing it, but we can add to this. So 
Let me know what you got. Again, if it's something that I think is better served as an entire chapter, then I might hold off on it. But if it's something that I can cover, as you can see here, the notes weren't particularly long. I think the longest one was the arboreal, fossorial, terrestrial one, because you have to explain what each one is. But the majority of them are, you know, maybe 200 words or so. What do you got? What are the terms we should be covering in this? Because it would be kind of cool. And I, I do appreciate that this is... The Thomas Big Spires thing, the great part about it is I'm no longer alone doing this. With all the avenues I have with the videos and the podcasts, I can reach out and get some help from people that are keeping them. So again, it's not just my information. It's all of our information. So that will about do it for this one, I think. Next week, I'm hoping to have some clips from the interview I did with Dylan from Animals at Home. I think that will be a lot of fun. And I'm thinking probably do a species care. I'm working on G Poker Bees right now, one of my favorites. And I just had to get some video of G Poker Bees for the best beginner tarantula species. So I'd love to get into that a little bit and then we'll see how it goes. But again, please chime in on Facebook with any of those terms or phrases that we use in the hobby that would need some explaining. I'm getting excited thinking about because I'm sure people are going to come up with ones that I would have forgotten and kick myself in the butt for, for not remembering. So let's hear what you got. Please chime in. I've been trying to be a little more careful at getting back to Facebook comments. I apologize for folks who have been leaving comments. I've been putting the little hearts to show that I've seen them, but sometimes I'm literally sitting at work on my phone and just going through and hitting all the hearts like reading everything but I don't have the time to respond so this one let's go through see what we can pull up and see if we can add to this list so that'll do it for me as always you can find me on tomsbigspiders.com I have the YouTube channel Tom's Big Spiders just look it up I pop right up my Instagram I just throw up pictures here and there but no I don't do a lot of answering questions Instagram is kind of my fun place where I just like toss up some spider pictures and it's kind of like a little I use my Instagram when I'm telling people that I have all these tarantulas so I can show them pictures of them but it's kind of my relaxation place so it's like I'm not working when I'm there let's put it that way it's like I just want to hang out heart you know like some pictures that I see put something up just so I have it in my gallery but I don't do a lot of interacting there so it's nothing personal it's just I can only do so much I can only be spread so thin and you know what I like every once in a while to just pretend like I'm just some you know Joe Schmo that's throwing up spider pictures and not having to you know get into answering a bunch of questions and stuff. So it's nothing personal. I, I have a hard time even finding where the comments are and the questions are sometimes because I don't use Instagram a lot. I only post pictures up every couple weeks or so. So again, apologies if you're trying to get a hold of me there, but if you really need to get a hold of me, please drop me an email or the, I'm telling you the best way right now is to hop over on YouTube and just leave a comment on anything. I'll find it because I answer all the comments over there because it's it's much easier to just go through a string of comments than bouncing around between all the social media. I'm still wrestling with that because there's only so much time in the day, and when you spend about 11 hours of your day putting together a video, it doesn't leave you a lot of time for the questions, which kind of stinks. So anyway, that's it. I'm done talking. You guys all have a great morning, afternoon, evening, and I'll catch you next time.